us. Father, we thank you for Lucy. We thank you for all that you put on her heart this evening. Thank you for um, just a deep wrestle with theology that she's going on at the moment. Thank you that she is a woman of your word and a woman of integrity, true to what she says. So Holy Spirit, would you fill her up now and would you change and shape us this evening? Amen. Good evening. Well, oh, it's better. You can hear me now. Um, brilliant. As Lyd said, my name is Lucy Coleman. Um, I have been coming here for just shy of five years, maybe four and a half years. I'm married to Joe over there. Um, we lead a life group, which might be the best life group, um, but it might not be. I don't know. I haven't been to any other ones. Um, and yeah, we love being part of this community, and it is such a privilege to speak to you this evening. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Tim, for asking me. Um, and I'm going to be continuing our series on the seven I am statements uh, that Jesus makes in John. We're going to be looking at the moment that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and it's an extraordinary story. And I think there is so much that God wants to teach us through his word this evening. Um, I'm actually going to ask Ange to come and read the passage because it's quite long. Um, 44 verses, in fact. And I get bored of my voice, so you probably will as well. So, uh, Ange, why don't you come and read to us? So it's John 11 um, verses 1 to 44. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. Um, great. So, the death of Lazarus. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His di disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. just going to make a bit more space here. Sorry, Connor. Right, what an account. Extraordinary scenes in Bethany. So just so that you've got a bit of a map uh, for where we're going to go uh, this evening, we're going to have a look at three things um, that we can learn from this scene. And at each moment, we're also going to look at what it teaches us about Jesus's own resurrection. Because the raising of Lazarus is another of Jesus' miracles. And what do we know about miracles? They are signs pointing to a greater reality. They are extraordinary in and of themselves. Men don't rise from the dead every day. But beyond that, they're signals of the reality of the kingdom of God. And we see all sorts of parallels between the raising of Lazarus and Jesus' own resurrection this sign, this wonder, this miracle, it points us towards the greater world-saving miracle that is to take place within just a matter of weeks from this moment. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, not because he's about to raise Lazarus, but because he himself is soon to rise. 
and everything is going to change. So just as with all his miracles, this one is a sign of something greater that is to come. So we're going to kind of look at this passage in tandem with what happened at Calvary. It's worth noting as well, I think, before we start, that Lazarus rising from the dead is not the same as Jesus' resurrection. Lazarus did not beat death, and he would die again one day. In fact, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Lazarus did not raise himself by his own power. It was the power of Jesus that reversed the impact of death on him. So we're just going to think a bit as well about how Jesus' resurrection differs and what it actually means for us today. So if this passage is a signpost to a greater reality, we kind of need to unpack what that reality actually is. What does it matter that Jesus is resurrected? I'm just going to pray quickly. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, that it brings truth and freedom and joy and peace and that it frees us from fear. I just pray, Father, that um, you would use my words this evening. Thank you for your presence here with us by your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So before we get into these kind of three things that we can learn, I just want to pull out one part of this passage that kind of um, is a bit random and I think is a bit of an invitation from Jesus. Because when we read this passage, I don't know about you, but hearing that and reading it, it's quite confusing. There's odd things going on. And I wonder if um, Jesus is actually inviting us to hold tight to who we know him to be. So he, he says to his disciples in verse 9 and 10, A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. It's kind of classic Jesus, a little bit riddle-ish, not quite sure what he's saying. But I wonder if what he is saying to us is, I am the light by which you see. Stick with me now, even if it doesn't make sense. We're about to go into some pretty crazy stuff. I know it's going to be difficult to understand, but remember who I am. Remember that I am good. Remember that I can be trusted. It kind of has echoes of I am the light of the world and even I am the vine. Remain in me. There's so much going on in this passage. And for me, even writing the sermon, some of it was confusing. It was unsettling. It was bewildering. It's hard to understand. So let's hold on to what we know about Jesus. Let's read this passage by his light. We know that he's kind. We know that he doesn't play tricks on us, that he doesn't mess with our hearts. He's powerful, he's mysterious, he's compassionate. These are the things that we know about him, so let's hold on to them and see this passage in the light of who he is. So that, I think, might be Jesus' invitation to us. So three things that we can learn from this passage. First, that Jesus glorifies God in all that he does. Second, that Jesus is moved by our pain. And thirdly, that Jesus points us towards the future. So Jesus glorifies God in all he does. He is moved by our pain and he points us towards the future. So what do we mean when we say Jesus glorifies God in all he does? Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus is critically unwell. And his first response in verse 4 is the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus doesn't give us any more information. He doesn't say how or why at this point, but we know that whatever is going to happen is going to glorify God. It's going to point to God and show that he is good and to be honored and praised. So we have to hold on to that statement from Jesus as we learn that far from rushing to his side, 
Jesus stays in Jerusalem for two more days. John makes a point of telling us that Bethany was only two miles away from where Jesus was. That's about the distance from this church to Sloan Square, if you'll forgive the incredibly middle-class reference point. It's not far. And we've seen Jesus do some unexpected things, spitting on mud and putting it on people's eyes, but this just seems senseless. I've kind of read it over and over again. Like, what was he doing? Why wait when your friend is ill and you have the power to heal them? Once again, we remind ourselves that Jesus himself has said that God will be glorified through this episode, and he invites us to stay close to him as we journey through this passage, reminding ourselves of who he is and holding on to the fact that we know enough about him to give him our allegiance. And we see echoes of this same reality as Jesus nears his own death, facing execution. Once again, he says it was, it's so that God will be glorified. John 17, just before he's arrested, and he knows what's going to happen, he prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Knowing he could refuse, he could run, he could escape, Jesus chooses instead the path that will point to God and make him known. In raising Lazarus from the dead and in his own resurrection, every decision Jesus makes is to glorify the Father. Two parallel situations, two apparently hopeless circumstances, two unexpected outcomes to bring God glory. And I wonder if this is a reassurance in our own lives when we face terrifying situations or disappointments or grief Jesus gently reminds us that he uses all things for his glory. And I don't want anyone to mishear me. God does not send bad things so that he will be glorified. He doesn't need to do that. But he has promised that he will bring beauty out of brokenness, streams out of wasteland, light out of darkness for his glory so that all would know that he is good. So Jesus glorifies God in all he does. Secondly, Jesus is moved by our pain. Verse 33 tells us that when he saw the two sisters who had lost their dear brother and the people mourning with them, he was deeply moved. Some translations say he groaned in the spirit. I just want us to picture that for a moment. Maybe even just close your eyes. Bring to mind the face of Christ in the midst of the mourning and just see for a moment the pain and grief in his own eyes. The groan of his spirit as he sees people in pain. This is not some triumph scene of hero Jesus sweeping in to make everything okay. He sees the grief and the pain and the fear and the shock and he groans he sees two sisters without their brother, and he's deeply moved. And I know for many in our church community, we're witnessing a similar grief in our friends, the Meekins. Two sisters, Abby and Lids, and a mother, Ruth, mourning the loss of their brother and son, Caleb. And we trust that just as Jesus feels the pain of Mary and Martha, Jesus feels their pain and our pain too. And Jesus asks the sisters where they have laid Lazarus. And they say to him, verse 34, come and see. Come and see the source of our grief, they say. Come to the epicenter of our pain. Come to where it feels unbearable. 
And I believe that Jesus asked the same question of us today. Where is the source of your pain? Jesus does not move away, but he goes nearer to the tomb, to the place of pain. Just as he does not avoid the pain of the cross, he does not avoid our pain. He asks us to take him to it. And then when he gets there, he weeps. Even though he knows what he's about to do, Jesus cries for the pain of his friends. Even though he knows that within moments, this wrong is going to be put right, he weeps at death. Even though he knows that one day for us, all tears will be wiped away, he sheds his own tears at our pain. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus acquaints himself with our grief. What a comfort to know that the savior of the world, the all-powerful, almighty God who overcomes everything is also one who has such compassion that he sees his friends hurting and he's moved to tears. And this is not, as some kind of theologians have theorized, Jesus kind of accessing his really human side, as if Jesus is sort of 50% human, 50% divine, and this is just, when he cries, he's just being a superhuman guy. No, this is truly God, truly man, indivisible, 100% both. This is the God of the universe crying. He is with us in our pain, moving closer and not further away. Let's just take a moment to bring to mind a place of pain in our own lives where we might need to say to Jesus, come and see. But Jesus doesn't stop at weeping. He doesn't just empathize. Jesus goes to the cross. And through his resurrection, he takes on our pain and the pain of the whole world. And he says that it does not have the final say. He says it is finished. Through his resurrection, Jesus confirms that the brokenness and pain and grief of the world is coming to an end. Isaiah 25 verse 8, death has been swallowed up in victory. Tom Wright puts it so beautifully, wonderful theologian. He says this, come and see, we say to Jesus, as we lead him, all tears, to the place of our deepest grief and sorrow. Come and see, he says to us in reply, as he leads us through the sorrow to the place where he now dwells in light and love and resurrection glory. Just as death was not the end for Lazarus and death was not the end for Jesus, death is not the end for us. Death and all of its associated infections of grief and disappointment and sadness and fear and heaviness of heart and coronavirus, they don't win. The moment Jesus walked out of the tomb, death was defeated and the new order of things was beginning. I am studying at St. Melitus at the moment um, at the college. I'm not training, I'm doing an MA. Um, and we had the privilege of having Rowan Williams um, with us for a session. Um, and apart from just giving me enormous eyebrow envy, he also um, shared some incredibly wise things. And I asked him, why did Jesus have to die? Which is a pretty classic question, I think. Not very original. And among other things, he said that Jesus entered death in order to explode it from the inside. Isn't that just the coolest concept? He entered death in order to explode death from the inside. 
Jesus took away the sting of death and he walked out the other side resurrected. This is no Lazarus being raised, kind of the power of death being reversed. This is the power of death being beaten. And so this resurrection is fundamental to our hope as Christians because it marks the moment that God's kingdom rule began on earth. Death, the foe, is defeated and a new world order has begun. Tom Wright, again, in Surprised by Hope, says that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the story of God's kingdom being launched on earth as in heaven, generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated and the new creation has been decisively launched. And I think at this point, it's really important to remember that death is God's enemy. There are some dodgy bits of teaching out there, I think may be taken from sympathy cards, that dilute death. God wanted them back with him. They were too good for this world. Or, heaven forbid, everything happens for a reason. No. I remember I had a friend whose friend died very suddenly at the age of 24. And my friend went to the funeral and she came back. She's not a Christian. And she said, yeah, the vicar said that we shouldn't be sad because she lived a good life and she was in a better place. And I've got to be honest, my heart burned with anger. Heaven forbid we become Christians who cannot acknowledge that death is wrong. Death is offensive to God. It's a product of the fool. It's the product of disobedience. There's a theologian called Robert Jensen, and he writes this. From first to last of biblical faith, God is death's opponent. From first to last of biblical faith, God is death's opponent. It was not part of the original creation of God, and it needed to be beaten. So Jesus comes near to us in our grief, but he does not only stay there. He gives us hope in his resurrection. And the thing about this hope is that it gives us authority. It gives us authority to say that right now things are not as they should be. The resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we find within it gives us the ability to look at this world, particularly at this time, that so often does not reflect the goodness of the kingdom of God. And it allows us to say with all authority, this is not how it's meant to be. Many of you will know when Joe and I were first married, I wasn't very well. I had a, a terrible anxiety disorder, which meant that I had to leave my job and at times couldn't leave the house. And it was frightening and disappointing and horrible. But there was something about, in those moments, crying out to God and saying, this is not how it was meant to be. And in that moment, just knowing that God wholeheartedly agreed with me, there was something so comforting about that. 1 Thessalonians says, uh, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. It doesn't say that we do not grieve. Jesus does not admonish Mary and Martha in their grief for Lazarus. He joins them. We are not called to be people who cannot acknowledge the gut-wrenching heartache of this world because Christians aren't supposed to be sad. When we acknowledge the pain, actually, we are prophetically stating that things are broken and that God is going to fix them. If everything was fine, we would not need a savior. God gave us Jesus in recognition that there is deep pain and hurt in this world and it needs to be fixed. So when we see brokenness or we experience grief, when we face bitter disappointment or our hearts are breaking, we're able to say this is not how it should be. 
And we can know that God agrees, and it's why he gave us Jesus. So Jesus comes near to us in our pain. And thirdly, Jesus points us towards the future. Whilst he meets us in our pain, our friend Jesus points us towards the sure and certain hope. He lifts our eyes to what is to come. In the scene, we see that Martha and Mary and the Jews mourning with them and the disciples, all of them, desperately wished that things had been different. If only he'd been here. Lazarus might not have died. Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind have prevented Lazarus from dying? They lament as they look back. If only Lazarus hadn't got sick. If only Jesus had come a bit quicker. If only. But Jesus offers a different perspective. In answer to Martha's if only in verse 21, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He invites her not to look back, but to look forward. He points her towards the hope for what is to come. He says, take heart and hold on because I am going to make all things new. That is the reality that is on its way. Perhaps there is an if only buzzing around your head at the moment. Maybe there are more than one. I know there is for me. Invite Jesus into your if only and listen to what he might be saying about the future he has won for you. Follow his gaze as he points to the cross, through the cross, to his resurrection that means that what is coming to an end is the brokenness that we see around us. What is on the horizon is the full release of God's kingdom on earth when everything will be made right and we will no longer grieve. The resurrection of Jesus is extraordinary because it gives us hope, because it's the concrete evidence that the kingdom of God is on its way. Hope in Jesus is not just optimism. Optimism is a vague sense that perhaps things will work out okay. As most of you probably know, because he's more evangelical about it than he is about Jesus, Joe loves the NFL, um, American Football League, which means that I love the NFL. Um, and he's kind of like, he supports the Dallas Cowboys, and he's kind of optimistic about their chances of winning on every, any given game. And maybe they will, or maybe they won't, but his optimism is based on nothing solid. It's true. And actually, the BBC just, um, just yesterday published an article on the BBC website, you'll probably be able to find it, about hope, describing it as looking on the bright side of life. They referenced a book called Making Hope Happen, implying that hope is something we can somehow conjure up ourselves. This is not what our hope is as Christians. Our hope is the resurrected Jesus. It's a historical event that has happened and cannot be undone. And it's a man who is fully alive and cannot die. It can't be undone. Our hope is in a person not something we have to muster up ourselves. So not only was the resurrection of Jesus the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah, but it signaled a new world order, a new reality that has come into the world, a reality where death no longer has the final word. Jesus doesn't offer optimism to Mary and Martha. He doesn't just say, stay positive, ladies. He points them to this reality, and he does the same for us now. Our hope is a person, and that person is the resurrected Jesus. So 
So the resurrection of Jesus secures our hope. And it secures our hope because actually Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians as the first fruits, the initial crop of an inevitable harvest. And this is our future hope, that one day everything will be fully renewed and restored just as Jesus was when he walked out of the tomb. It will be exactly as God created it to be. Our future hope is that God's kingdom will fully come on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. And all the things that are broken will be fixed, and the full glory of God and all the created potential of the world will be released into glorious, colorful redemption. The reality of this hope was confirmed the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. In raising Lazarus, Jesus is signaling to his grieving friends that there is great hope on the horizon. But the thing is, this hope that we have in the renewing of all things, it doesn't just bring us hope for the future, but it brings us hope now, today, 2020, in the midst of a a global pandemic. Right now, hope today. First and foremost, because the work of the kingdom of God, that promised reality to come, has already started. It began with Jesus. It was confirmed in his resurrection. The kingdom of God is in our midst already. And we see that in the entire life and ministry of Jesus as he heals people who've suffered for decades and performs miracles that no one's ever seen before. And ultimately, in his death and resurrection, he shows the world what the kingdom of God looks like and demonstrates that God's reign is already underway. And this changes everything because it means that what we do now in the name of Jesus, it matters in the kingdom of God that is coming. We're not just biding time until Jesus comes back. We're not just trying to make this life a little bit less horrible. We are his people demonstrating the extraordinary reality of God's kingdom that is near now. And it gives us purpose because we're participating in something real We're building into God's kingdom, and the fullness of that kingdom is an inevitability. It's on its way. It's been on its way since the moment Jesus was resurrected. So this is our present reality and our future hope, all wrapped up by the resurrection of Christ. And the promise is a good one, as John writes in Revelation 21, and this is the message version. I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone, all the first order of things gone. The enthroned continued, look, I am making everything new. Just as Jesus resurrecting Lazarus was a sign that one day there will be no death, So when we open our homes to people who need a meal or a bed or a conversation, we are demonstrating to them the reality that one day there will be no more need. When we help to alleviate someone's pain, be it physical or emotional, we're reflecting that resurrection hope that one day there'll be no pain at all. When we invite people to church, we're letting them know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what it means to be people of hope now. What we do in the name of Christ is not wasted because we do it in the name of the king who is coming to reign. And finally, as people of hope, we are called to bring the world into better correspondence with how it's going to be when Jesus comes back and all is made new and perfect. 
this is not just about being nice people because Christians have a reputation to uphold for being nice. Mike Pilavacci said, if it's not good enough for the kingdom of God, it's not good enough for now. If it's not good enough for the kingdom of God, it's not good enough for now. The promise of this coming kingdom inspires and enlivens us to call out the things that aren't right and in partnership with the Holy Spirit to welcome those kingdom realities in. As Christians, it is our prophetic mandate to participate in bringing the hope of the kingdom into reality. It's a prophetic exercise to say this isn't right, but look what's coming. And we're going to bring that in now. 1 Peter 2 says, We are a people belonging to God, called to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what it means to be people who hope in Jesus. So we trust that everything Jesus does is to bring glory to our heavenly Father. We allow him to come near us in our pain, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We acknowledge that the world is deeply broken and we need a savior, but we lift our eyes to look with Jesus to the promised future and we allow it to give us hope now. Our hope is sure and certain because Jesus did everything that needed to be done and it cannot be undone. The raising of Lazarus was a sign of a greater reality where death is beaten once and for all. Our hope is alive through the resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection is the sign of things to come and all will be well. Amen. I'm just going to take a moment of quiet um, and then in just a few moments I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to respond. Let's just take a moment.